save big money on everything for your spring projects at Menards. We have all of your garden and landscaping essentials. Master Garden Premium Garden Soil contains a slow-release fertilizer that feeds gardens for up to nine months. It produces better results and is ready to use for all your gardening needs. Save big on Menards' great selection of garden and landscaping products. Compare brands in-store or online at Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. When Robin Cho was found guilty of murder, it shocked his defense team. I was incredulous. This is investigator George Little. It was just kind of shocking, really. I mean... When you, when you look at all the evidence and you look at all the testimony and that convicts Robin Cho, uh, come on. But the prosecution? I was confident and all of the evidence that I wanted to come out came out. This is prosecutor Frank Santoro. So I was very happy with how it came out and I thought justice was being served. But neither side had much time to think about what had gone right or wrong. Because six days after the jury delivered its guilty verdict, they were back in court to begin the penalty phase of the trial. And ultimately, to decide whether Robin Cho would get life without parole or sent to death row. I'm Sharon Choi. And I'm Ben Adair. This is Strangeland, Season 1, The Koreatown Murders. This is episode six. We affirm. So Ben, when the trial goes to the penalty phase, a lot of the normal rules of the verdict phase are kind of suspended. How do you mean? Like what? Well, first of all, some of the evidence that the judge barred from the verdict phase became admissible, which gave prosecutor Frank Santoro new ammunition. Literally. Now he could talk about the bullets that police saw Robin Cho throw in the trash outside of the Ross Dress for Less. I'll never forget, like, two jurors turned and looked to another juror and, like, just smirked with an I told you so face. Whatever holdout in the original jury deliberations that was like, well, DNA, little green men could have planted it. When the bullets came out, it was like, look, how obvious does it need to be? In the first part of the trial, it's all about the facts, trying to prove or disprove what happened. But with the penalty phase, things tilt heavily towards emotion. Like, the defense presents a photo of Robin Cho with his wife, Puna, walking down the aisle at their wedding. Or there's Robin, his wife, and their two sons. In one photo, they're at the Grand Canyon. In the next, they're at SeaWorld. And the prosecution, in turn, shows a photo of the Songs with their kids at a playground. 
or posing for family photos in their apartment. And this battle for the jury's emotions, it carries through to the arguments from the lawyers. It is an unfathomable decision. I would imagine that it probably haunts people for decades. This is Victoria Kim. She's now the sole South Korea correspondent for the Los Angeles Times. But before that, she covered this case and the trial. There is the fact that a crime qualifies somebody for the death penalty, but whether they should receive it or not, I think, is much less of a legal question than the determination of guilt. So I do think it it does happen frequently in penalty phase trials that it does end up being a lot more about about the people involved. And on the defendant's side, it is showing, you know, what kind of a person they were before the crime, what kind of a father, what kind of a friend, what kind of a um, figure in society they were. And the prosecution's job is to counteract that by explaining what the loss was. In her article about the penalty phase, Kim wrote, Deputy District Attorney Frank Santoro emphasized to jurors the brutality of the murders, calling them, quote, sophisticated and deliberate. Even though the boy was just two years old, he would know fear and pain, Santoro said. The prosecutor asked jurors to imagine the last moments of the 30-year-old mother who was probably killed after seeing her son's body. Quote, show him the same mercy as he showed the child, which is none, Santoro said. And based on those quotes from the prosecution and the guilty verdict, it seemed like Cho was heading to death row. But then something interesting happened. The judge in the case, Judge Curtis Rapay, did something that, according to Andrew Flyer, helped the defense immensely in the penalty phase. What I did like Rapay doing, Judge Rapay, excuse me, is he did allow me, because not always judges did it, to argue lingering doubt. There's that jury instruction in the penalty phase, because I was screaming, whoever held out, lingering doubt applies. So how is lingering doubt different from reasonable doubt? They're very different. So per the instructions to the jury in this case, quote, proof beyond a reasonable doubt is proof that leaves you with an abiding conviction that the charge is true. The evidence need not eliminate all possible doubt because everything in life is open to some possible or imaginary doubt, unquote. That was the burden of proof required for the guilty verdict. But lingering doubt is different. I'm reading again from instructions given to the jury in this trial, this time during the penalty phase. Quote, Each individual juror may consider any residual or lingering doubt as to whether the defendant murdered any or all of the victims. A residual or lingering doubt is defined as that state of mind between beyond a reasonable doubt and beyond all possible doubt. Oh, okay. So if the defense has created enough lingering doubt in the minds of the jurors, then that could sway them from giving Cho the death penalty. Right. And once Flyer knew that he'd be able to argue lingering doubt in the penalty phase... I thought I was going to win. I'm going to tell you right now. I thought that was key for me. 
The sentencing phase of this trial was uncommonly long, over six and a half weeks, and then the jury deliberated for six days. The penalty phase, however, was short. It began on July 2nd, and both sides rested on July 5th. One day later, on July 6th, 2012, the jury returned with their penalty life imprisonment without parole. And although he thought he made a strong, well argued case, Andrew Flyer was still somewhat surprised that the jury decided against the death penalty. If I was a juror and I thought he did it, I would have voted for death. I have people in death row as a DA, I defend them. But I believe in this rule, you know, you do the crime, you pay the punishment. I would have voted death on this case if I believed he did it beyond a reasonable doubt because the DNA, I would have been death. And the penalty surprised even the more impartial people in the courtroom that day, like Victoria Kim. If you, if you think somebody has murdered three people, including a two year old boy, using guns, in the state of California, that is punishable by death. And yet they voted against it, which says something. It does seem odd, and it does probably signal something about how confident the jury was, perhaps, um, in their guilty verdict. But I, not having spoken to the jury members, I don't know, but it, it is odd. For his part, Prosecutor Frank Santoro said he was fine with the verdict. I'm, I was fine with it. If that's what the jury wants and they think is appropriate, I'm totally fine with it. We're talking about truth and justice and what's fair. And if the jury thought that that was appropriate, then we are all absolutely fine with it. Cho was scheduled to be sentenced on September 7, 2012. However, three days beforehand, the Flyers filed an application for a new trial. Their argument was based on multiple grounds, including insufficiency of the evidence and prejudicial prosecutorial misconduct. But a month later, Robin Cho filed a motion of his own. Alleging ineffective assistance of counsel, Cho fired the Flyers and got a new attorney. We asked Andrew Flyer about this. In his view, it's pretty par for the course when defendants are found guilty at trial. You know, you could be the greatest lawyer in the world. If there's an adverse verdict, who else are you going to blame? You're not going to blame yourself, are you? So, you know, that doesn't happen. But I never had a problem with Robin, even to, up to today. On September 5th, 2014, Cho was officially sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. A week later, Cho and his attorney filed a timely notice of appeal. So, what do you do when you've been sentenced to life in prison without parole for a crime you still insist you didn't commit? Robin chose options after the break. Save big money on everything for your spring projects. 
at Menards. We have all of your garden and landscaping essentials. Master Garden Premium Garden Soil contains a slow-release fertilizer that feeds gardens for up to nine months. It produces better results and is ready to use for all your gardening needs. Say big on Menards' great selection of garden and landscaping products. Compare brands in-store or online at Menards.com. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. So Sharon, back at the very beginning of our very first episode, I was talking about how I first heard about this case. There was a friend of mine, and she introduced me to a friend of hers, a criminal defense attorney by the name of Leslie Boyce. Boyce knew about the case because after the trial was all over, she became Robin Cho's lawyer. She spearheaded his appeal. So a couple weeks ago, I went and interviewed her. Can we move this just a little bit yeah, so I'm a little more square to you guys? We met in her office. Yeah. How's that? Which is a room overflowing with documents in this cute Spanish-style office building in downtown Santa Monica. She told me that she first heard about the case from investigator George Little, and it intrigued her. So she met with the Cho family, and then met with Cho, who by this point had been transferred to prison. She was interested, but couldn't be sure if it was a case she really wanted to take on. He was rather circumspect. And I, understandably, he'd gone through a very long ordeal and it had not ended well for him. But we had a good rapport and I decided to take the appeal, to take the case. So where does she start? Maybe a better question to ask is how does she start? Like how do appeals work exactly? So as Boyce explained it to me, the job of an appellate attorney is limited. Basically, as the lawyer working on the direct appeal of a case, there are certain things that you can include in your appeal and a lot of things you can't. Think of trial as a picture frame. And the reporter's transcript is everything that took place in that picture frame. But if it took place outside the picture frame, if it wasn't on the record, it doesn't exist for my purposes. And it's frustrating because I cannot retry the case. My job is to give Robin Cho the opportunity to retry the case. That's my only goal, is to get him a new trial. And at the beginning, it's like a mystery story. It's different than the crime. The crime is one mystery story. The trial is a different mystery story. So I am going through it with a magnifying glass, looking for errors. I'm looking for reasons to convince appellate justices to reverse and give him a new trial. And the only way that's going to happen is for it to be sent back down to the trial court based on reversible error. 
So, did she find a big, glaring, reversible error? Not quite. This case is interesting, and and again, I want to go to my notes on this because I find it is so extraordinary. There was no giant dragon of an error that just breathed fire and jumped off the page at me. But there was day in and day out small errors. And even harmless errors, as they accumulate, can become reversible error. And that's something I refer to as cumulative error. The way Boyce explained it, there are two levels of errors in a trial. First is harmless error, which is basically any error that wouldn't have done anything to change the outcome of the trial. Then there's reversible error. This is an error that's big enough to have changed the verdict. The verdict should be reversed because this error was made. Reversible error doesn't free someone from prison or drop the charges, but it does get someone a new trial. So what Boyce is saying is that there's no one big reversible error in Cho's trial. Instead, she saw lots of little errors that when you add them all up, maybe they become a reversible error. Right. So Boyce broke down her argument into a handful of points. The first of these cumulative errors was something that you pointed out last episode, that Detective Brian McCartan testified out of order at the end of the trial after the defense had rested. And that as part of his testimony, the prosecution showed three and a half hours of interrogations to the jury, where McCartan talked over and over about the irrefutable DNA evidence. So the investigating officer, who is the cheerleader for the prosecution, is one of the last witnesses the jurors ever hear. You'll hear Boyce call Detective McCartan the investigating officer, the I.O., So the I.O. gets to take the stand in this particular trial at the very end, and which is a very powerful, it's it's almost like closing argument. But then the prosecutor still gets his closing argument. So he gets almost, it's like he gets two closing arguments. The I.O. talks, and then he gets to make his closing argument. Not only that, there was three and a half hours of interview testimony in which they berate Robin Cho about DNA, three and a half hours of audio that the jury listened to at the end of trial, which is powerful prosecution evidence. Now remember, the I.O. is not a DNA expert. He has no expertise in DNA. So when he says something, it's the same as you or I talking about DNA evidence. It's just his opinion. Yet they keep saying again and again over 103 times in the course of this three and a half hours, you're dead. This DNA evidence has you dead to rights. There's nothing you can do about this DNA evidence is trumps everything. They keep saying how powerful and indisputable. I think they say irrefutable. Irrefutable again and again. It's irrefutable. It's undeniable. It's irrefutable. DNA evidence is irrefutable. They are, it's almost like subliminal conditioning. 
So then they bring that three and a half hours of unrelenting DNA browbeating and they attempt to browbeat the jury with it by playing it at the very end of trial. So they allowed in all this testimony at the end of the trial. Is that a harmless error or a reversible error? What does Boyce say? Boyce said the prosecutor did a lot of funny business like this in the trial. Add it all together, and yes, she wrote that it was reversible. I'll give you another example. In pre-trial hearings, there was an argument over the admissibility of the typewriter evidence. Okay, this is the typewriter confiscated from Cho's mother's apartment that the prosecutor tried to link to the tip letter, basically to make the case that maybe Cho sent the tip letter. Right. In pre-trial hearings... The prosecution had earlier basically assuaged the concern of defense and had told them, oh, that typewriter that was found in, in 2008 wasn't even in existence back at the time of the murder. So basically the defense could feel like they could stand down on that issue because that typewriter wasn't even made at the time of the murder and the time of the wacky note that was made on it. But then, wow, in the middle of trial, the prosecution brings up an expert and new evidence about that typewriter that says, oh, yes, it was available then. And not only that, we think that it's the same little daisy wheel or ball that is on the brother that made the note back then. Well, mid-trial, the defense is not going to be able to investigate and rebut that the newest theory on the typewriter. And the typewriter was just one more nail in the coffin for Robin Cho. All these weird... So it's another little thing the prosecution did. One more in a big list that Leslie Boyce put in her appeal. But there was one big argument that Leslie Boyce made. And it was the one that she was sure would put her over the top and get Robin Cho the new trial she felt he deserved. Let me guess, that's coming up right after the break? That's coming up right after the break. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games. You ever meet someone who seems kind of off? Whether it's a creepy neighbor or random phone number that keeps calling you, Truthfinder has you covered. You can search for people by name, address, phone number, email, and more. Truthfinder can be especially helpful for running confidential background checks on anyone you're planning to meet from online dating apps. Go to truthfinder.com slash podcasts for a special offer. That's truthfinder.com slash podcasts to access your special offer today. According to Boyce, the biggest error made in the trial, and maybe her strongest argument on the appeal, was about the Ponzi scheme or as it was referred to in the trial, chose, quote, bad investments. In my brief, I refer to it as the Ponzi poison because it permeated the record. The court might say, well, he didn't, they didn't refer to it as specifically a Ponzi scheme. Well, 
if they describe a Ponzi scheme in testimony, it's the same as saying it's a Ponzi scheme, in my view. And if you describe someone as mercilessly defrauding friends and neighbors, again, in my view, it's going to color how the jury thinks about this defendant. My feeling is that somebody doesn't go from committing some type of pencil-pushing, fraudulent crime case to a triple homicide. It's a, it's a quantum leap. It's um, like going from ballet to, to extreme fighting in a cage. It's, you know, they're very different, qualitatively different things. Boyce also said that the trial took place when America was still really upset about Bernie Madoff and his Ponzi scheme slash bad investments. Disgraced money manager Bernard Madoff behind bars at this hour after pleading guilty to a massive Ponzi scheme. Madoff pleaded guilty to a... Maybe the jury could have been colored by that too. Yeah, I could see that. Because the prosecution said the bad investments spoke to motive. Their idea of the robbery gone bad. Right, but Boyce also says that they never really made that case. They never closed the circle on motive. The other bracket on that should have been, well, where is the evidence of monetary gain in this murder? But there wasn't evidence of monetary gain. The premise was that Robin Cho needed the money to pay back those who were defrauded. But, as I argued in the appeal there was not evidence of robbery in this murder. Um, There was valuable jewelry in the house. There were valuables that were clearly left. Right. In closing arguments, the prosecution even told the jury, motive doesn't matter. But the damage to Robin Cho's character was plain. Boyce submitted her brief to the California State Court of Appeals on August 17, 2015. And on January 28, 2016, the State Court of Appeals submitted its ruling. It's a long document, 62 pages. The justices from the Court of Appeals responded to Boyce's arguments one by one. On the testimony and witnesses on Cho's financial crimes, Boyce's so-called Ponzi poison, the court writes, Any error in admitting evidence regarding Cho's financial misconduct was harmless. On the typewriter evidence, the court writes, the trial court did not err in admitting evidence related to the typewriter found in the home of Cho's mother. And on the interrogation tapes, it writes, the trial court did not abuse its discretion by failing to exclude portions of the interrogation transcript referencing the strength of the DNA evidence. And ultimately, in regards to the trial and the verdict, it writes, we affirm. The appeal was denied. Oh, devastated. Devastated. It still is hard to look at. These two words, we affirm. These are the two most powerful words and probably the two most devastating words for a defendant. It was devastating for me because I did put my heart and soul and intellect into it. I, 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 didn't, I didn't leave anything on the table. Even the trial judge 
which I included quotes from him through my brief, he acknowledged concerns about reversal and appeal and error. You know, he was very concerned about it. And the judge also was concerned about the Ponzi evidence. He, he acknowledged that, you know, he didn't expect the witnesses and the time devoted to it that he got once he opened the door. This is the court, the trial judge saying, the problem is someday some court is going to come down on prosecutors for doing that. I mean, it just has nothing but an emotional appeal that's designed to prejudice the jury. And therein is the essence of my argument. But this particular appellate court did not, did not deem themselves the court to do that. What did the Court of Appeals say about cumulative error specifically? It seems like that was the backbone of her appeal. So this is where things get subjective because it is a matter of opinion whether or not a bunch of little errors actually add up to one big reversible error. Boyce argued that's what happened in Robin Cho's trial, but the Court of Appeals disagreed. They ruled that every error was harmless and that any cumulative error was also harmless. Why? Because at the end of the day, only one thing mattered to the jury and to them. The justices looking into their crystal ball say they would have, even without hearing all those bad things about Robin, they would have convicted him of murder because, because they say, quote, as the district attorney repeatedly emphasized during closing arguments, the primary evidence of Cho's guilt consisted of DNA that was extracted from the rubber gloves fragments found on the tape wrapped around Sharice's wrist and mouth. So they basically are saying everything else might as well have been harmless because the jury was going to convict based on the DNA. Trial should be a level playing field and the defendant should have a fair chance. Basically, that is what I was arguing for in my appeal in the from the beginning to the end of my appellate briefs and my reply, I was arguing for a level playing field. And I don't believe Robin Cho had that. After she received the state's affirmation of Cho's guilty verdict, Leslie Boyce filed a response, trying to argue her case one last time. She wrote that the Court of Appeals had ignored, quote, the powerful cumulative effect of the myriad errors which had pockmarked this trial like building blocks, each error built upon the ones before it, creating an impermissible impression of guilt, unquote. But the state had made up its mind. Robin Cho was guilty. He'd been in prison when Leslie Boyce met with him. He remained in prison while she appealed his case. And he's still in prison today. You know, Sharon, there's one more thing that Leslie Boyce brought up that I thought was really interesting. It happened when I asked her if she thought Robin Cho was innocent or guilty. She sort of reframed the whole question in what I think is a very interesting way. 
I'm looking at things under a microscope, really. I'm just looking for errors. Mm -hmm. So I'm not looking for guilt or innocence as much as, as errors that resulted in a guilty verdict. So it's it's different. It it is his. I guess what you're referring to as true guilt or true innocence has relatively little bearing on on what I'm looking at in an appeal. What do you, what do you mean, true guilt or true innocence? Well, I, I think you were asking whether someone did it or didn't do it, as opposed to what a trial decides. Exactly. I don't think a trial um, determines true guilt or true innocence. I'm saying true guilt or true innocence is did the person do it or not do it. And trial guilt or innocence is a different animal. Trial guilt or innocence, I think, is often comes down to good lawyering. Or bad lawyering. As the case may be. And decisions that are made by a judge. On the next episode of Strangeland... We've walked through Robin Cho's case and all its twists and turns. Now, it's time to walk through everything that doesn't add up. The lingering doubts, the nagging questions, everything. One by one. To me, it's a, they're two separate killings. There's the, the nanny and, and the boy are one murder scene. The fact that they weren't tied up, that they're nothing, the same thing didn't happen to them that happened to a woman tells you there's a different category of intent. The next episode of Strangeland, produced by Western Sound, starts right now. You ever meet someone who seems kind of off? Whether it's a creepy neighbor or random phone number that keeps calling you, Truthfinder has you covered. You can search for people by name, address, phone number, email, and more. Truthfinder can be especially helpful for running confidential background checks on anyone you're planning to meet from online dating apps. Go to truthfinder.com slash podcasts for a special offer. That's truthfinder.com slash podcasts to access your special offer today. The living room is where you make some of life's most beautiful memories, but your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant high-performance furniture from Ashley Store is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley Store's high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, comfortable, and easy to clean for more mess and less stress. Shop the life-resistant high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.